I want to welcome you guys this morning. It's good to have you. Uh, good to be here. My name is Tony. I have the privilege of serving as pastor in this place. Summer is coming to an end and we're, fall is about to start, especially if you're in PG. It's like school starts the first week of August. You're like, what happened? You know, anyway, that's a digression. Uh, I, I just loved Labor Day starts, but there we go. Maybe just me. So we are journeying through the Gospel of John. I'm glad you're with us. Right now we're in the, what's called the Jesus Gets the Discourse. So it's these few chapters, 13 through 17, where Jesus gets to say these last few things to his disciples before they launch into the world. Uh, I got so caught up in the whole Labor Day start of school, I forgot to dismiss the kids. So if you would like to hang out with some other kids and learn what it looks like to practice the way of Jesus with some other kids, Miss Jeannie is over there. Feel free to hang out with her. If you're in middle school or high school, next week we're going to start uh, our youth gatherings, youth celebrations, youth discipleship space. So that is going to be, uh, it starts, goes from 9 to 10 right before uh, our service. Uh, Aaron and Claire are, or at least I think they're here, they're here somewhere. They're right there. If you have any questions, they're right there. Stand up for a second so people can see you if they have youth. There you go. Awesome. So we're in this thing called the Upper Room Discourse. We're actually in chapter 17 right now, which is a prayer. And so we've watched as Jesus teach all kinds of things. He's told them he's going to leave them. He's told them, hey, this is what it's going to be like. There's going to be some tension. And then that leads him to chapter 17, which is a springboard into prayer. He spends the entirety of chapter 17 talking to the Father. The thing that's interesting is actually immediately after he is arrested in chapter 18 of John. So this is the words he concentrates on before he is literally executed and abandoned, denied by his followers, betrayed by them. So just take a second, enter into that moment. What would you pray for? Like you know the next 12 hours is going to be probably the hardest 12 hours of your life. What do you pray for? And I ask that question because I find it pretty incredible what Jesus prays for. Now, I'm going to ask us to do something a little different today. Uh, often, I just read the text, but I've been a little convicted that um, actually, like, retention goes up astronomically if you not only see it and hear it, but you actually read it too. Uh, and if we're the kind of people that are wanting to practice the way of Jesus, my invitation to you is look at the words that are projected up, them, up there, Hear yourself say it and say it with me. I'm going to divide this prayer into four sections. This is verses one through five. I just invite you to pray it with me. This is the ESV, which is going to be a little different than in your Bibles. Um, this is how it goes. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to, and this is his life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you 
before the world existed. So there's a few uh, moving pieces here. But one of the things that really stands out to me is right at the beginning, Jesus says, as he's talking to the Father, you know, my hour has come. Now, if you've been with us in our journey through John, you'll know, like, chapter 2, Jesus is already talking about timing in his hour. Right? He's at a wedding at Cana. His mom is there like, hey, make some cool new wine. He's like, my hour has not come. Right now, fast forward 15 chapters. And Jesus is saying in the presence of the Father, my hour has come. And then it's interesting. Now, if you recall, if you go back to chapter 12, verses 27 to 28, Jesus is praying again to the Father. And he says this, about this moment, right when his hour has come, he says this, my soul is troubled, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, right? Like, take me out of this situation by your It was for this very reason that I came. Father, glorify your name. So Jesus knows hard times are coming, right? And he's like, what should I do at this moment? Should I sort of sidestep it? He says, no, Father, glorify your name. That's chapter 12. So it shouldn't surprise us now as we enter into uh, verse 1 of chapter 17 that Jesus is like, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Right? Jesus' heartbeat is to see God lifted up, to see God honored. And that's how he begins his prayer. His deepest concern is to see God glorified. And he knows that through his death and resurrection, right, he is going to be glorified in that process. Right? He will be the means, the way, the truth, and the life to eternal life. And he knows at a deep level, he says, and guess what, guys? This is eternal life. Being with me and being with the Father. Glorify God. My hour has come. Let's be together. And it's interesting to me, as we get into verse 4, Jesus really concentrates on what the Father has invited him to do. You notice that's pretty interesting. So he's in the shadow of the cross. Now he's looking back on his life and he's like, hey, I've done what you asked. What his purpose is, Jesus has this very clear understanding of what his mission is, what his purpose is, and why he was sent to earth as the only begotten son of the Father, and why he is walking around in Galilee, in Jerusalem. Now, if you've been with us through this journey, you've seen through the Gospel of John, just time and time again, Jesus is like, hey, I just do what the Father says. I just say what the Father says. And you get the feel in verse 4 that Jesus has talked with the Father a lot about his mission and what he has sent to do. You get the sense that, well, we don't know exactly, like on his bar mitzvah, you know, he's turning 13. It's not like, my guess is God didn't hand him a manual that said like, hey, at 1030 on, you know, your 32nd birthday, you're going to meet with this person, say this, right? I don't think he does this like download, like minute to minute schedule that maybe we have in our Google calendar. I think more likely it's through this conversational relationship with God that he learns, okay, I'm going to say this, I'm going to do this, and now he looks back and he's like, hey, I've been journeying with you, God. I've done everything that you've asked me. And then he ends, right, that little section, and he transitions into part two, which is verses six through 11. Now, this is interesting because it's really about why he prays for the disciples and us in parts three and four. So he goes from big picture, and I'm going to invite you to name, right? I've done this because you asked me to do it. And then he transitions in this section, and I'm going to invite you to read it with me so you can retain it super well. 
This is how he starts, right? Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Now again, I just want to sort of do a quick zoom in of like, look how clear Jesus is on his mission and his purpose, why he came to earth. Right? Verse 6, God, you gave me these folks. You entrusted these people to me. Verse 7, right? I, I am praying for told me to say. You told me these things, I passed it on. Verse 9, I am praying for them, likely as you told me to. Verse 11, hey, I'm going to be leaving, and now the game is changing. Right? I, you're going to have to protect them, God. The world is not going to be an easy place for them. Now, one of the things that Jesus introduces in this chapter, specifically in this little section, is this idea of the world. Now, if you sort of look at, I think it's verse 9, Jesus is like, I'm not praying for them. You can sort of think he's like cranky. Like, no, I'm not praying for them. I'm mad at them. You know, I don't think that's actually what's going on here. So this idea of the world, the cosmos, uh, is used uh, 79 times in John. Half of those references take place in the upper room discourse between 13 and 17. So as Jesus is leaving, he really focuses on what does it look like for the disciples to be in the world. And then in chapter 17, half, a quarter of the entire uses of this word cosmos and the entire gospel of John take place in this chapter. As Jesus is leaving, he's really focused on what it is going to be like for the disciples in the world. Now, the world can mean two things, cosmos, right? It can mean uh, the people who oppose God, right? So Jesus says, I, you know, I am the way, the truth, and life. He establishes a way to practice and follow God. The context in people who oppose that, a.k.a. the world. The world can also be the context in which the mission of God takes place. So it can be both a place and a people, right? So we get to verse 9. Jesus is like, I'm not praying for them. And the question is, is he sort of, like the grumpy family member who's like, I'm not talking to them, you know? Or is there something else going on? Let's go back to John 3.16. You probably know it. Right? For God so loved the world that he sent his own son. So it's hard to imagine that Jesus won't pray for them, but he'll die for them if he doesn't love them. So this point isn't that Jesus is grumpy. The point is Jesus is specifically praying for the disciples. And specifically, he's praying, right? He wants the world through the disciples to come to know him, to come to know the Father. And in the end, if you were here last week, we talked about how the gospel starts with human beings and expands to all things, right? In the book of Colossians, Colossians 1, uh, the author Paul says this. He says, you know, Jesus will reconcile all things through what? The cross. So Jesus is actually going to die to reconcile all things to the Father, not just people, but all of creation,
So Jesus doesn't hate the world. And in fact, in verses 11 through 19, he starts praying for the disciples in the context of the world. And he prays for three. For protection, he prays for sanctification, and he prays for unity. Let's read it together. That's how it goes. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you may keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So Jesus clearly recognized to follow in his, as he leaves, the game is changing for the disciples. They don't have him to follow in his footsteps, right? They don't have them, him to just follow right there, right? Rabbinic discipleship is all about walking in the dust of your rabbi. Right, so the idea is, first century, you wear sandals, the rabbi walks, as he walks, he flicks up sand, the sand then gets on the Talmudin's legs, and the idea is you're walking so close to your rabbi that you're covered in the dust of his feet. Right, Jesus is going to die on a cross. He's not going to be there with him. So he starts praying, right, hey, keep them in your name. Right, the world is going to be out there. Right, there is this one, the evil one, that's going to want to undermine their faith. Protect them, God. Keep them in your name. Keep them in the way that I have taught them over these last three years. Right, Hasatan, the one who opposes God's work in the world, is going to try and undermine them. He's like, guard them, protect them. And not just so they can hang on by the tips of their fingernails, right? He wants them to experience joy. Right, verse 13. He wants them to experience life and joy, flourish. And he knows in order for that to happen, God is going to have to protect them. He's going to have to guard them as Jesus has guarded them. Now, one of the things that's interesting as we sort of get into the two other topics mentioned here, one is this idea of sanctification, the other one is unity. This idea of sanctification, whatever it is, sanctification, tricky. Um, so you can see right here. Uh, and there, whatever it is, sanctify them in your truth. You see that? That's verse 17. And then you go to verse 19, it says, for I consecrate, do you see that? Consecrate and be sanctified. Those three words, sanctify, sanctified, and cons consecrate are the same word. So it's a little confusing. Actually, you'll see this in the NIV uh, that's in the pews, right? Those are all the same word. And what they mean is this, set them apart for me. Right? And you go through the Old Testament, when something is consecrated or dedicated, it is set apart for God. This is why Beasley Murray, he's a commentator, and we're biblical commentary, he writes this. Consecrate them in the truth will have in view a separation from the ways of the world. Right? So you have this idea of the world has its own way of doing things. We know this. 
right? Secular culture has its own way of doing things, Jesus is saying. Consecrate them in view is a separation from the ways of the world, so for a life in conformity with his revelation in Christ and dedication to his service. So what he's saying is, in the truth, consecrate them for your mission in the world so that they will not be swept away by the evil one and sort of have their faith undermined. Consecrate them. They may be dedicated in your mission in the world. Right? That they might be not of this world here. Practice the way of Jesus. And lastly, Jesus prays for unity here. Now, we could dive into it right now, but I think actually the next little section really teases out what Jesus is praying for when it comes to unity. Let's, again, this is your last one, so just sort of get the energy going. You only got one more. All right. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and I will continue to make you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now I know like for us, like there's a lot of moving pieces and a lot of language going on there and it's like kind of maybe a little tricky to wrap your mind around it. So let's go back to this unity idea, right? So in part three of this prayer, Jesus prays for unity. But in verse 21 here, he really gets at the guts of what unity looks like. He says this, they may all be one, just as you, Father in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Right, so you have this picture of the oneness of Jesus and this Father, this sort of, sort of relational intimacy, right, is then shaped by how Jesus relates to the disciples, right? They spend time together. They get to know one another. They become of one mind and one heart, Right? And then Jesus is saying, hey, guess what, guys? That is what I want you to be like in the world. And he's saying, hey, not only these disciples, but us, that we would experience the kind of unity that the Father has with the Son, with the Spirit, before the creation of the world. That we would live in that kind of unity, both with God and with one another. God in the world. Pretty incredible, because then Jesus connects this to the mission of God in the world. That actually our oneness and unity that is a connection, a personal connection we have with God, that we are of one heart and mind with God, then flows into how we love and connect with one another, which then becomes integrally connected to our witness in the world, right? Verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them 
even as you loved me. Right? So then our connection with God, our relationship with one another becomes integrally connected to how we are the body of Christ in the world. People look at us, and if we are divided, they see the chaos of the world reflected back at them. If they see the unity and love we have for one another in God, they see the kingdom of God bursting forth in everyday life. And Jesus really clarifies this in verse 26. He's like, hey guys, and guess what? Just as the Father loved me, like I want this love to reside in you and then you'll carry it wherever you go. Now one of the things that's pretty incredible, I know we've covered a lot of material this morning, but one of the things that's just so beautiful to me about this prayer, if you think about it, it's like the most optimistic prayer in the history of the world. Jesus is literally about to close his followers, Peter. He is about to be tortured. He is about to be denied by one of his closest followers, Peter. He is being betrayed by one of the people that he has just been with. And Jesus doesn't say, hey, I'd like to sidestep it. Can we do it a different way, God? Instead, what does he do? He prays for the disciples and he assumes, he assumes that their mission of the world is actually successful that they actually do become consecrated for his mission, that they actually maintain a sense of unity so that they are his witnesses in the world, so that we are sitting here today and he prays for us. It's this unbelievable moment. He's like, and guess what, guys? You are going to betray me. You are going to scatter and abandon me. And guess what? God is still going to work in you and through you, bring you together, transform you, that you're going to be sent out and transform the Roman Empire within 300 years. And that we will exist on the Monterey Peninsula, followers of Jesus that are trying to practice his way, when at that moment, Jesus is about to be crucified and tortured. So I bring us back to the way I started this morning. What would you pray for at that moment? Isn't it pretty incredible what Jesus prays for? He's like, God, may my life, may these people that I cross glorify you. God, may these people that I have invested in, that you have given me, protect them. He's not even thinking about his own pain. He's thinking about them. He's thinking, God, protect them, guide them. Be with them. They're going to be distraught and lonely and depressed in the next 18 hours. Be with them. And then he's not even thinking about them too. He's thinking about us. And he's praying for you and he's praying for me. That we would be one. That we would align our heart and life with the Father. With the kingdom. That we would be shaped in his image. To his glory and our transformation. That is Jesus' final prayer before he's arrested and betrayed. And then the question is for us. So how does this then translate into everyday life on the peninsula? You're like, awesome prayer, Jesus. What about me? You know, how do I like make this real and live in our context? Living in Marina, seaside, going to work, working a nine to five, a mom who's changing diapers and up half the night. You know, like how does this make sense in our life, in our world? I think the first thing that really stands out to me in this text is how attuned Jesus is to the what and the why and the how. His mission in the world, he exists. 
He is so attuned to his mission in the world, who God has given him. And he's like, this seems to be formed in a conversational relationship with the Father. Right? He's connected to the Father, and in that connection, he runs, oh, God, yeah, maybe I should say this. Maybe I should do this. This is what obedience, this is what faithfulness looks like. And it's shaped and formed in this relationship with the Father. And if you look at the disciples too, right? How do they know their mission? Well, they just spent three years hanging out with Jesus, listening to his teaching, marinating in his presence, watching how he interacts in this world environment, in the culture they're in. And the question becomes, I think, for us, is I think most of us want to practice the way of Jesus. I think that's one of the reasons we come here, right? We want to figure out, how do we follow him faithfully? I think some of us are looking for that kind of meaning and purpose in life. We feel like, you know, I go to nine to five, I do my thing, I'm doing family. Like, what does God's purpose and meaning for me look like? You know, we don't want to be just sort of distracted in our cultural moment, like binging on Netflix and waiting, you know, daydreaming about our next epic vacation. Like we want, I think, more than that. But I think the thing is, this image, it's more than this. If we really want to be shaped into Jesus' image, it starts with a connection with the triune God. It starts with this place of connection. It begins with prayer. So in our cultural moment, we approach prayer in a lot of different ways. And I think this is important to tease out for a few reasons. Um, But I just think we can misappropriate this really quick if we're not careful. So what is the goal of our connection with God? So like in a secular culture, uh, if you think about it, like Google has these courses. Imagine that's the self. You know, Google offers these courses on sort of prayer, mindfulness, meditation. Uh, and And the idea, the name of the course is the search inside yourself course. And that's sort of like what, how our culture views prayer. Prayer is about slowing down, taking a break, getting in touch with yourself and what you love. Great, right? Like that is our cultural moment and how slowing down, you know, Sabbath prayer gets framed. If you're of a little more like a Buddhist persuasion, the self is a little different. So in a Buddhist framework, uh, the self is fundamentally, you're trying to sort of lose a sense of self so that you almost evaporate and you become one with the universe, right? So what do you do? You lose a sense of self. So the idea is to become nothing and you just sort of become one with the universe. Now, in a Christian idea of bliss, nirvana, in a Buddhist framework. Now, in a Christian framework, the center is connecting with God. There is an outward movement. The point is we are connected with God. We are sort of merging with God. Wrong word. We are connecting with the relationship with God, with the being of the Trinity. And it's actually in that connection, in that conversation, in that interchange that we learn who we are. It is not our secular moment where we're just trying to figure out, you know, who I am. It's not a Buddhist framework where we're just losing self. It is actually in our relationship with God that we understand what it means to live faithfully. It understands who we are. Because God has uniquely made and shaped each of us. And it's as we come into contact with him, spend time with him, that we understand who we are and our mission in the world. 
All right, so I think there's two basic applications. If we want to be the kind of people that are shaped in Jesus' image, that practice his way, that aren't sort of just undercut by the ways of the world, I think there's two ways to lean into this. One is sort of at this intersection, or both of them really are at this intersection of connection with the Trinity that then informs our mission or purpose. One is more general. You know, and this is probably not going to surprise you. It really starts that are shaped in Jesus' image. If we want to be people that are practicing the way of Jesus, it really starts with us connecting with God in prayer. This is marinating in the scriptures, right? Jesus comes to his self-understanding through marinating in the Old Testament, relating to the triune God in a cultural context. The same is true for us. Same is true for the disciples. We cannot get to meaning and purpose and being shaped into God's image without making space to attend to the speaking voice of God without being in the scriptures, being shaped by the narrative of the Bible. That's why so often we talk about ABLE here, right? So ABLE is our basic discipleship acronym, right? On a weekly basis, we are, I am challenging you. We are challenging one another to attend to the presence and the voice of God. Like that should be a part of who we are, our normal rhythms, that is why we're inviting all of us, right, to bless people inside and outside the church. Inside the church so that we're embodying the love of God. We're maintaining the unity of God in here by blessing and loving one another. And then blessing people outside the church on a weekly basis so that, right, the world may know the love of the Father. L is learn, right? We're learning from the scriptures. We're making time to prioritize the scriptures in our everyday life. Right? E is eat. Right? Creating a space to eat with people in this body and outside of it so we can get to know one another, connect with one another, and be a live, live into the purpose and meaning welcome in the world. So on a general level, if we want to live into the purpose and meaning that God has for us, I think it starts here. This is the foundation. And I would invite you, not just in abstract, but in the practical, what habits do you have? What rhythms and practices do you have in your life to connect with God right now? Look back over this last week. Let's not make this abstract. Like it's actually very concrete. In this last week, were you in the scriptures? Or have you forgotten where like the Bible is? You're just like, I think it's in that room, you know. In our cultural moment, I think it's really easy to neglect these habits and practices because of number two, which is a little more specific application of meaning and purpose. I think we want to know exactly what my meaning is for life and bypass the general practices that Jesus established through the scriptures and that we learn in conversation with the Father. And we want to go to what is my authentic meaning experience in the world? So we neglect these practices and then go to like number two, which I would say is sort of like, what exactly has God invited you to do in the world? To me, that flows from this first place of being in the scriptures, being in the presence of God. And then we can know, right, when the disciples are sent out on their mission, they go to new places, individual contexts, and a little unique. God made them. So the way they apply the mission is unique. It's always going to be a little unique. It will be so for you and for me, right? So if we said, what's the most important thing for the church to do in the peninsula? And we had all of us vote, there would be like 40 different applications, So there's the general. We have to have practices that shape us into Jesus' image in the presence of God. And then there's the specific. And this is questions like this. Do you know what the thing is that you need to do? Not necessarily like what you can do. 
Like we can all do all kinds of good things in the world. Do you know what the thing you must do is? Jesus knew that. Do you? This is questions like, are you able to say no to the good things that pop up in order to say yes to the best? Based on who God formed you to be, based on your story, based on your skills, based on who God formed you to be, right, for good works in the world. There is a general format that we're all invited to practice the way of Jesus, be in the scriptures, listen to the speaking voice of God. Now there's a more specific. It's almost like the difference between one is foundational, the other one is interior design. Like, we all want a nice room, but we need the foundation. The thing is, God is sending, right, these first uh, disciples into the world to be a witness of his presence, and he's sending us too. I think if we want to be those kind of people with that kind of meaning and purpose, it requires us to not only spend time in the presence of God, you know, in attending and learning, but also leaning into who God specifically made us. So if you're not sure how to do that, I have a couple sign-up sheets just around the room. I have one on the piano, and I have one on the window over there, and one on the window over there. If you want a couple tools, if you feel like you're rocking the foundational stuff and you want to go a layer deeper, deeper, I have a couple tools that I can share with you. Uh, So just sign up on there during worship. But I would invite you to ask God about it. God, is this your invitation to me? And if during worship you feel led to sign up, do it, and then I'll, I'll give you some tools that can help you lean in. Now the second thing that, so you have the, the, you know, the what, how, and the why. I think the other thing that Jesus is keenly aware of is the who's. When you look at this prayer, you just see Jesus is like, oh God, you gave me these people. Protect them. You know, I've shared everything you told me to share with them. Like, God, I've, I've honored what you've invited me to do for these 12. And it's not like Jesus picked their name. God has told him these 12. The Gospel of Mark, what we see is he spends all night praying on a mountain and comes down and God has told him these 12 people. And I guess my question to you is, if you want to have the meaning and purpose of God in your life, do you know who you are meant to love? Do you know who your 10 or 12 are that God is inviting you to bless? that God is inviting you to eat with, that God is inviting you to pray for and pray for their protection and sanctification? Do you know who those people are? Are you like a, you know, I don't know, it's maybe a bad analogy, but sort of like there's a pinata out there and you're blindfolded and just sort of like prayer swinging, you know, hoping to hit something. What's clear for Jesus is that he knows those people and he's praying for them. He's passing on what he has been given to these people. He's investing in them. Who are you investing in? Who are you praying for? Who has God given you in your family, in your workplace, in this community that you're saying, ah, I'm gonna pass on what you've given to this person. I'm gonna love this person. Who are those people? And my thought is, if we can't as a community identify at least every one of us, five people in our life, this is a great thing to pray into. Who are your five? Who are your 10 people that God is saying, hey, bless this person, love this person. You should be able to look back. Oh, God, just like Jesus. Yeah, I didn't really think about those people at all. Or, yeah, God, just like Jesus said, I've done what you asked me to do. The last thing is this, just about unity and abiding together. I think we cannot underestimate 
how important our connection with God and one another is in the world. I mean, we see this, right? The division of the church is ammo for the world, for people outside the church to say, your God is not real. You do not love one another. You do not love God. And it becomes a living billboard, a living testimony for people outside the church to say something's wrong here. And at Wellspring, we cannot let that happen. One of the original stories of this whole church plant was that the original group of people said, we are going to set aside our preferences so that God is glorified in this place. And as we enter into communion in a minute, I just want to challenge you. Like, is there a person in your life right now, particularly someone in this church or in the church global, that you are resentful or bitter or harbor anger against? As we enter into communion, communion is a time when we can say, God, forgive me. This can be a time when we can seek reconciliation. This is a time when we can confess so that we can be into the presence of God. Jesus is the one who lays down his life for us so that we can be and carry God's love wherever we go. So one of the things we do at Wellspring is we try and celebrate communion a couple times a month. You know, it's one of the anchoring sacraments of the church throughout history. We do it a few ways, but the, the main way we do is we will invite you to come forward and walk up here as a way of saying, hey, we are a people on the move that are moving towards Jesus. Communion is also a time when we can say yes to God. If we've never said yes to God before, communion is a time when we can say, Jesus, I want my life to be shaped into your image. So if you've never decided to follow Jesus, communion is a time when you can say, God, you know, I want to follow you. Communion is a time when you're drifting. Maybe you've just kind of been doing your own thing for a bit where you can say, Jesus, I want to consecrate my life to you and your mission in the world. I'm going to set aside my own agenda. I'm going to pick up yours. Communion is a time to do that. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with his disciples. And he took some bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said, this is my body. He took some wine which was also broken for you. And he took some wine which was also at the table and he said, this, this wine is the blood of the new covenant. So you can experience the forgiveness of sins. Drink this. And the disciples broke the bread and drank the wine. And in that process, what they did is they said yes to Jesus being the food who satisfies their hunger and the, thir- the, the wine that satisfies their thirst. I invite the communion ministers and the worship team to come up. And there's going to be folks standing up here. What they're going to do is they're going to say to you, this is the body of Jesus broken for you and you have a choice. You have a choice to pick up that body and say, yes, I want, to, I want you, Jesus, to be the center of my life. And then they're going to put the, the grape juice out in front of you and say, ah, the blood of Jesus. And you have an opportunity then to choose to dip the bread into the grape juice and say, Jesus, I want to be covered and cleansed by your sacrifice. I'm just going to pray for us as we, as we start. 
that our hearts may be just centered in God. So God, we want our lives to go into this place. We just say, you are good. And we want our lives to glorify you. Just as Jesus did. God, we want to know. We want to be shaped into your image. We want to know your purpose for our lives. But God, we know that it begins by following your example. The example of self-giving love. The example of laying down our lives at the foot of the cross. And so God, we just pray now in this moment that you, Spirit, would convict us. You, Spirit, you would speak to us. If there are things that we need to turn away from, God, I pray that you would just convict us now. God, I pray that we would have profound experiences of your presence as we move towards you as a body, taking of your bread and your body, the wine and your blood. Come, Lord.